So this morning I'm going to read for us uh, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, fine clothing, comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In a few moments, we'll be eating from the table, Lord's table which is not a place of partiality. It is not a place of favoritism. None of us will come to the table and say, thank you, Lord, that you love me because I am a, position, a person of such high position or of such desirable character. All of us will come to the Lord's table and eat because of a mercy that does not show partiality. I call the, the Lord's Day Reorientation Day for a reason. And I hope that there is something in the preaching of God's word today, in the reading of the text, that will reorientate something in our own hearts from the capacity that we have to show partiality, the capacity that we have to show favoritism because of the, the deep flaws of insecurity that are within us, and reorientated ourselves to the capacity of mercy. And so I don't ask you this morning if you have the capacity to be favorites or show favoritism. I know the answer to that. You do. I do. The question of the morning is, do you have the capacity for something to so conquer what is within you that finds the path to favoritism that allows you to show mercy? The trajectory of the text that was read this morning is towards mercy, and the apostle uses his apostolic back, his strong back, his words of authority to try to take this church from a place of transgression, from a place of sinfulness and defilement in its favoritism and the way that they treat one another and, and bear it up to a place of mercy 
You'll notice that verse 13 ends with those words of mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Triumph is a very strong word that speaks of the boasting that mercy isn't something that just merely exists in the church. It's not merely something that is valued in the church. It's something that that boasts its existence over all that we have natural reflexes for. And it's a tremendous transformation of God's people when mercy triumphs. But that's exactly what the cross is all about. It's exactly what we experience as Christians at the foot of the cross is the triumph of mercy. Christians should instinctively and intuitively know that we should be people of mercy. But the issue of favoritism and partiality that James is addressing shows that there is a mercy gap in the church. In other words, there's a gap between the mercy that God has shown us and the mercy that we have the capacity for to show others. And instead, we speak and we act with impartiality, with favoritism, or with partiality towards one another. And there is a mercy gap. James has already identified some of the reasons why such a a mercy or a gap in mercy exists. And one of the reasons is that we look in the mirror, and when we look in the mirror, we see objects of mercy in the gospel. That's what we see. When we look in, in God's mirror, we see objects of mercy. But we look in the mirror, and we forget what we've seen, and we walk away forgetting what we have seen in the mirror. That's why there is a mercy gap. We are people who are are plagued with the disease of self-deception and James has talked about that do not be deceived in your hearts. And so we're deceived about the way that we have been treated and the way then that we should go proceed and treat one another. There's a mercy gap because we are hearers of the word and only and not doers of the word. We hear a lot about mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. We hear, hear lots of mercy. And we hear the words of mercy, but we're hearers of the word only and not doers of the word. And so there is a mercy gap. The gap exists between what James is addressing here. He says, speak and act. Verse 12 says, speak and act. And there is a gap between the way that God speaks and acts to us in Christ and the way that we speak and act to one another in favoritism. That's a mercy gap. The way that God has spoken to us, the way that God has acted towards us is without regard for our place or our position. And so the question in the Christian's life isn't if we will show mercy, And the question that James is answering here isn't how to obtain mercy. The question is, in the text, how will we show mercy? And that's the question that the text is answering. What is the path to mercy? We know that we have the capacity for favoritism. But what is the path to the place where mercy triumphs? Here's my main point from the text. If you don't get anything else this morning, I I hope that you can take this home with you and, and chew on it that favoritism is conquered, and it has to be conquered. 
It can't just be some moral platitude that, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be that way. It has to be, there, there, there needs to be something that, that comes into our life with a, a definitive tone of victory and obliterating something that exists in us to conquer something that, that is there. And that's the capacity for favoritism. And that is conquered. And oh, Lord have mercy on it. us. It can be conquered. God is real. And it changes everything. It's conquered through experiential mercy. Not just the belief in mercy, but the experience of mercy in the lives of Christians. Conquers the capacity for favoritism. Let me define the word mercy. It's a, it's a word that we, we hear a lot. We need to be able to hear the word mercy and do the word mercy. Do you know what it means? Let me give you a ad definition, not the definition, but ad definition of, of mercy. Mercy is the surprise decision by God. And it is, it's a shocking decision. Mercy is the, is the surprising and shocking decision by God and God alone. It is his decision. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's his decision to withhold from us what our actions, our speech, and our act deserve. That's mercy. He withholds it from us and he puts it onto another. And that is our Savior, Jesus. That's what mercy is. The surprise decision by God to withhold what our speech and acts actually deserve and to put it on to another. And I don't believe there's any shortcut here how to arrive at a mercy that triumphs. Our reflexes for favoritism are strong. Our insecurities are deep. Our culture reinforces the impulses of favoritism. There's something in us that has the capacity to always look for advantage at the expense of others in the way that we act, the way that we speak. It's the stuff of children's playground. And it's the stuff of Christian churches. And so James holds up the mirror here. And he holds up the mirror of the law. He says, take a look at yourself. Take a look into, into the mirror. And what do you see in Delhi? When a, when a Christian looks into the mirror of God, what do they see? They see a person in all of our defilement and in all of our blemishes and all of our, our fallenness. And in that condition, one who has been shown mercy. That's what the Christian sees. Now the gap is closed when we look in that mirror and we just, just try walk away. Just try walk away and forget what you've seen. If you don't understand ourselves in our day-to-day -day identity with God as a Christian, as a one who is experiencing mercy, what do you most want from God? What is it that you desire most from God? What is it that, God, if I would have this one thing, let me have this in all of its fullness. You see, some Christians don't even want mercy. They don't even think that they need mercy. 
You can't live the Christian life like that. If you don't, if you don't have the yearning and the longing daily that, Lord, I am an object of your mercy. Praise the Lord. And you know very little, actually, of what it means to be a Christian and of Christian experience. Reading through Psalm 86, verse 5, it says, Oh, Lord, hear my cry for mercy. Ever gone through a season in life like that? Where, where it's a season of the soul. And a season of the soul is, is one where, where you cry out to the Lord for mercy. And it reminded me, the psalm did, that the, it says, and the Lord hears the cry for mercy. What, what a gracious ear that is. Of the maker of, 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 as our catechism question says today, the maker of all things. I mean, if, imagine if you were the maker of all things, who would you have an ear for? It is such a mercy that God hears our cries for mercy. I want to expound these ideas with, with two simple points from the, from the text. That the first few verses, verses 8 through 10, verses 8 through 11, actually deal with, with the law. And I believe that James's intention there in bringing up the law and dealing with the law is to show the repulsiveness of favoritism. That it's a sin. It's a transgression. And God is indignant about it. And we need to feel the weight of that. Not just walk away and say, well, it's a trivial thing. Secondly, I want to, again, emphasize that that favoritism is conquered by mercy. And that comes by, by looking ahead where we will be judged. And verse 12 says, we will be judged by the law, not the law of condemnation. We will be judged by the law of liberty. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. But the repulsiveness of of Favoritism, I believe, is what James intends the, the people to feel. His, not to feel the apostles' indignation. He has said earlier that, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But James doesn't say, I'm angry. He says, God is displeased. And to feel the weight of God's indignation. And you see, we are self-deceived in, in this idea that we can receive mercy and walk away and not show mercy. The mercy gap is a, is a gap of self-deception. Ever try to deal with somebody who's self-deceived? Ever wake up and realize, oh my goodness, I've been self-deceived and, and, and grasp the danger that your soul was in? There's no reasoning with a person at times, who is self-deceived. You can talk to them all day long. There needs to be an objective authority that wakes a person up. And the law is the physician that can heal the sickness of self-deception. And so James speaks of the law. And his point is very simple. Partiality is a sin. It's not a trivial sin. And if we show partiality, then God's indignation is as great as if we broke the law in any other way. See, God's law is a whole. God's, God's law is one. It, it, it's not like a train where you could just take a couple of cars off the train and still look pretty good. It's like a piece of glass. You know the glass that shatters if it gets a little nick in it? We had a glass in our door in the front door in our church here this summer where the heat of the sun caused the metal frame to just twinge a little bit and the whole thing just collapsed. You know, pile of glass on the floor. That's what it's like. 
when you break one law. And so James wants them, I believe, to, to feel the, the weight of the indignation of a king. If you knew what it really was to keep the royal law, a royal law is given by a king. This is a declaration of how to live in God's kingdom. And you're trouncing it. I believe one of the best illustrations of it in the scriptures is from Matthew chapter 18 of the parable of the unmerciful servant where a master forgives his servant a great debt. Why? Because the mercy or the, the servant cries for mercy. And the king hears that cry for, or the master hears that cry for mercy and he forgives his debt. And then there's a mercy gap in that servant. And he goes and, and he beats a fellow servant in order to extract from him a much smaller debt. And I think in that story, the person that Jesus wants us to identify with is the master. Can you feel his indignation? Can you feel the way that, that, that the actions of his servant are repulsive to him? And he says, you wicked servant. <laughs> I have forgiven you a great debt. Should you not have shown mercy on your fellow servant? In the same way, Jesus says, your heavenly father will not forgive those who do not forgive their brothers. The psalmist says God is indignant all the time. It's because there isn't a moment in time when what God created and created good is not being defiled and corrupted and threatened with destruction for all that he made good. Indignation is not contrary to God's love. It, it's in fact necessary for God to love. You can't love somebody without feeling indignant towards the things that threaten the object of your love. And so God speaks in love to his people on the mountain in Israel. He loves every man, woman, and child in Israel. And so he says, do not kill them. Do not steal from them. Do not cheat them. Do not lie to them. And I think we're meant to feel the weight of, of God's indignation. Now, be very clear that, that James introduces the law not to as a path to justification, but to answer the question, what does it look like to be justified? What does it look like? What does a justified look like? Not as a, a way to clothe ourselves in righteousness. Our showing mercy doesn't skip or doesn't tip the scales of justice for us to receive mercy. but it does show us what do those who are clothed in righteousness by faith, what do they look like? How do they, how do they speak? How do they act towards one another? I mean, just think about what the church is for a minute. We are the people of God, and we have a living Christ as our head. And when people come into this place and gather in fellowship with this body, they are connecting to a people who are full of the Holy Spirit, connected to a living head who is Jesus. Just think about it for a moment. And the responsibility to be God's people and why James speaks the way that he does in, in 
the transgression of favoritism. Secondly, favoritism is conquered by mercy. Verse 12 says this, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Key word there. As I said, not under the law of condemnation. It's the same law, but in Christ, the law of condemnation becomes a law of liberty. Be judged under the law of liberty. So look ahead to that. Think about this, he says. Verse 12, 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And so James introduces his future prospect. He says, look ahead. Imagine something in your future, and that future prospect is to invade the present so as to affect how we speak and act. Speak and act like this, he says. Influenced by what you see in the future. Ever been influenced by something you see, anticipating something? Where your anticipation of it in the future affects the way that you act in the present? That's exactly what our belief in, in the future is how to affect our present. And our future prospect is that we will be in the presence of God and we will be judged by the same law that all people are judged by. But in Christ, we will, it will be to us a law of liberty. We will be set free from the condemnation of all of God's indignation against him because we are in Christ. You see, the law doesn't disappear. <laughs> it's perfect. The law isn't going to go anywhere. Don't arrive in heaven and think there will be no law there. The law will be there. The law is a, is a display of the perfection of God. To, to remove the law would be to remove God. The law will be there. But James says, as it is to us a law of liberty. And so imagine ahead. Imagine ahead in, in all that we will experience before God. Imagine ahead to the future in such a way that your present life is flooded by it. We will appear before a glorious and holy God. Stop and think about it for a moment. Our catechism question today is, is what did God make? We're going to be in the presence of the God who, by the power of his word, spoke all things into existence. And then, by the following authority of his word, spoke about all things and how all things should be governed and live. That's why his law here is called the royal law. In all of the array, not only of his authority and his power, but of his perfection as a holy God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that now we see in part, and then we shall see fully. Wow. What are we going to see fully? We're going to see God fully. That's what we're going to see. He says now we know in part, but then we shall be fully known. <laughs> it scares me. We shall be fully known. Only then will we fully grasp the weight, although James, I believe, is saying to look ahead. Look ahead and, and imagine this. Only then will we fully grasp the weight that Christ has been for us. 
when we are most fully aware of all that we truly deserve by the way that we act and the way that we speak. As our Lord calls out there when we, when we are, are conscious of all that we deserve and the Lord, our Savior, in the midst of heaven to the throne calls out, Mine! Mine! Mercy will triumph. And this is the only way that mercy conquers favoritism in our lives. It's to experience all that the law of liberty is for us. And so James gives a very strong warning. It says, judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. It means don't be presumptuous. Israel was a lot, had a lot of presumption in them. We're God's favorite. Therefore, we can worship other things. The Pharisees were full of presumption. We're the children of Abraham. Mercy is never used to entitle or excuse sin. Mercy is always used in the Bible to defeat sin. It's exactly the opposite way many people use mercy today. And Christians are often manipulated by this. Oh, Christians should be merciful. And what they mean by that is Christians should, should just allow people to live however they want. The purpose of mercy in the text isn't to enable favoritism. It's to vanquish favoritism. And so there is a strong warning that our favoritism would be vanquished by mercy, and that mercy must be there as an evidence in our speech. So speak and so act. Mercy must be there in our speech and our conduct as the proper evidence as people who are hoping in mercy. Speaking and acting is a way that mercy triumphs, in a way that mercy triumphs. It doesn't earn us for future mercy but it is evidence of the faith that has a hope in future mercy. And so James' words are strong. They're strong because, again, he's dealing with self-deception. Here's the self-deception. It is this. They are deceived about this, that I can have faith in mercy without having the works of mercy. That's a self-deception. And he'll go on in the next paragraph to say that such a faith is worthless. Say, I have faith in mercy. I have a wonderful faith in mercy. But there's a gap between your faith in mercy and your capacity to show mercy, which means you have no idea what mercy is. And he'll ask the question, can such a faith save you? I believe it's very relevant that we're coming to the Lord's table today. It's a table of mercy. And I'm going to read an extended passage from 1 Corinthians 11 this morning because I believe that in the context that the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord's table, he talks about this very thing of favoritism between the rich and the poor. And as you come to the table, understand that it's a place where God has not shown favoritism. That it is a place where we eat and drink for mercy. We remember the cross in order to receive mercy. And Paul, but Paul says, you're divided. 
rich and poor, you're, you're divided. There's favoritism. There's partiality amongst you. And he says, because of that, the table that you eat from actually isn't the Lord's table. And I think by implication then, if the table isn't the Lord's table, then the people who eat of the table aren't the Lord's people. Can such a faith save you? So please hear uh, this word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. In the following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's table that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or or do you so despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What do I say to you? Shall I commend you? No, I will not. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, but for mercy. My gracious and holy God, thank you that you have spoken. I pray that the words of your apostles would penetrate our our hearts, Lord. Grip our hearts. Take our hearts, Lord. Keep them. We can't trust them in our own strength, in our own care. So, even as we eat and drink. Lord, help us to have the mirror properly showing us what great objects of mercy we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.